0: Brought to you by Penguin.
1: When life does take us to these difficult central points, this centripetal force that pulls us to the middle, and things are difficult, we do tend to feel we're most alone and we're isolated or we've failed or whatever that is. It's a very, normally quite a lonely place. But the point is. That's life doing its thing, which means we are at that moment experiencing the weight of life, like the the actual heft of life itself.
0: Hello, and welcome to the award-winning Penguin Podcast with me, Izzy Sutty. Each week on the show, we ask an author to allow us a peek behind the curtain and to lay bare their processes, their habits, and what drives them in their work. Our guest is also invited to bring with them a selection of objects that have influenced them or their writing in some way. And then we'll delve a little deeper into why, in this case, a camera, a paintbrush and a raffish cloak have had such an impact on their work. In the hot seat today is a man who, since his TV debut in 2000, has entertained the nation with his heady mix of illusions, mentalism and jaw-dropping live stunts. On television, he has predicted the lottery results, played Russian roulette and convinced members of the public to commit robberies and possibly worse whilst under his tutelage. On stage, he's electrified audiences on both sides of the Atlantic, picking up two prestigious Olivier Awards for entertainment for his 2012 show, Svengali. He's also a successful author. His 2017 philosophical anti-self-help self-help book, Happy, was an international bestseller. And now he's back with a book of secrets, which aims to help us find solace in a stubborn world. Described by GQ magazine as the only man who can can really pull off a goatee and a black shirt combo, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the Penguin Podcast, Darren Brown. <laughs>
1: Hello. Hello. God, an amazing introduction. None of that sits well with the cardigan that I'm wearing, which only you can see. Well, um, actually, I loved your book, by the way, which I will
0: come on oh, to wow. in a minute. But um, I also you. loved the mention of knitwear because I am an absolute knitwear fanatic and I hoped you might be wearing a cardigan today.
1: I am. I have so many cardigans, although this is the favourite. Although what I have realised, and I didn't realise we'd be talking about this so soon, is that I think I think this smells a little bit. And I've just realised this before starting the podcast. But yeah, I do. It's Maybe it's turning 50. Um, maybe I've just moved to the country. And I think the nanosecond you arrive in the country, the moment you leave the M25, you stop caring what you look like. Do you knit? I don't knit. No, I don't knit. That'd be a, it's a, it's a, a great place to admit that I did. But no, I don't. I I don't knit. It's socks as well. It's like good. I've actually got some alpaca socks, which I, I found. They're actually not great. They're not as good as they as they sound. But she said you don't need to wash them. <laughs> she said in the oh, shop. Oh, really? No, you don't need to wash them every time. Just air them. And um, I'm not painting a very pleasant picture of myself. I realise a woolly, stinky uh, older man.
0: Um, I really did absolutely love the book and I found that though I read it on a long train journey and I found myself stopping and thinking about bits. It certainly wasn't something that I could just read. I thought it was really funny and really moving and honest.
1: That's amazing to hear because you are only the, I think, the second person I know who's actually read it, The second, like the second person to Say that they've read it. So that's like I'm, I'm at that. As I'm sure you know that very vulnerable, sensitive stage of uh, caring very much about what people think. So thank you. Uh, thank you. That's nice to. That's nice to know.
0: It's a weird thing, isn't it? I'm a stand-up, so I'm used to testing ideas out really quickly. And one thing I found really hard was just sitting in a room and writing, then showing my editor
1: after months. Did, did you find the same? All the other stuff I do, with stage shows and TV, there's always a team of us involved. There's a director. There's an editor. There's you know whatever. There's a um, you always feel by the time it's put out there it's it's the best version of what it is because there's a you know a consensus from people that are working on it whereas it just isn't like that with the book i guess unless you're having something ghost written it is just blah it's just what you think and um hopefully you've got a a, a great editor but of course you know you never you never know and i feel like i've got a great editor uh, this is the first book she's worked with me on so it's a, it's i presume so but even if she was the best editor in the world if i was writing rubbish that wouldn't really you know make it great so there's a sort of a definite sort of vulnerability to it, to it which I don't have with other things it's harder to judge so that's always you know that with happy I was worried would it seem like I was overreaching a bit you know talking about stoic philosophy and things that had nothing to do with magic or whatever you want to call it the fact that it went down well was a sort of was encouraging um and of course once you've done it you must have this as well when you've when you've written it you're then into the weird world of having to promote it, which you're sort of the whole point is writing it. That's the whole joy of it, is 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 writing it. It's that process. I sort of had this weird mix of caring very much what people think, at least for the first bit, and also not caring about it at all once it's once it's done. Sort of can't really remember anything anything I've written. Um When you've made
0: something, you put so much care into it and so much vulnerability, it can be hard to know how to view it and it's almost possible to view it as lots of things at the same time. It's still part of you, the book, but it's also not part of you because people will have their own ways of reading it and their own stories, essentially, when they do read it.
1: Yeah, totally. And they may just prefer a previous book and that may be how they express it. I preferred whatever. I found that with stage shows as well. Like, I always love the stage show I'm doing at the time the best. And I kind of have to because I've got to go out and do it every night. But, of course, it's very normal for other people to still enjoy it but come away going, I preferred so-and-so I think so-and-so had a better whatever that's hard as well that's perfect like a very reasonable thing it makes no sense for everybody to also prefer that final project you've just done Uh, and of course they're going to make comparisons so yeah I mean it's um I try and take the sort of stoic move I guess of of just separating myself from uh from all of that I try not to because in the old days you just you know you wouldn't read reviews but nowadays how do you how do you avoid coming across on social media what people think of it and they're not they're not going to express that with whatever filter a, a critic might even use it's just going to be expressed in the worst in the worst possible way i think of social media like reading people's diaries and i think i think if you the horrible things that people may say they might write in their diary but and if you read something horrible about yourself or or if you were eavesdropping you know and heard someone talking about you the sort of horror horribleness of it would be mitigated by the fact you know you're not supposed to be reading it, so I kind of uh, or listening, so I kind of try and treat it like that, and don't read what people say about me because I think about it like it's I'm reading their diaries, even though of course it's public. And um,
0: you t- spoke about a lonely night when you're performing on Broadway, and you, and I think you spoke about the circuit of kind of checking various social media things or checking your emails and going round. in the
1: news, the news app, chuck that in as no, well. Yes. Um, and it is, but this is the point, isn't it? So we live in a culture, I suppose, both happy and, but, but also this book, are uh, a response to the idea that we can make the universe bend to our wishes. You know that mm. that sort of whether we buy into the, you know the the secret or the law of attraction or just the general optimistic American mode of if you set your goals enough and if you believe in yourself enough, then you can get life to bend the way that you that you want it to. Um, i mean it sounds very plausible and because and who wouldn't be you know want want to be optimistic but it's the same model that i noticed uh, faith healers use when they and i've done a lot of faith healing on stage and i've i've spent a lot of time sort of immersed in it so that thing where you tell people to throw their pills away and and have faith in the fact that the healing has happened now there's no magic to it you can very easily create The feeling for somebody 10 minutes on stage with lots of adrenaline and the surprise and shock of it all that the symptoms have gone and the pain has gone, you know, adrenaline is a painkiller. It's not hard to create that thing on stage for a bit, even though that looks amazing and impossible, but it isn't that hard. So clearly things are going to return, right? People are going to go away and the, the symptoms are going to, most of the time, are going to kick back. Occasionally it is enough if something, the psychological component of that particular suffering was enough. It can genuinely shift, but nothing's actually happening within a person, right? As in, if you x-ray before and after, clearly nothing's changed. But anyway, um, for most people, they're going to go away and the symptoms are going to return. So they're told to have faith and that's it, to throw your pills away. And if it does return, it's because you didn't have enough faith. You did not believe in this enough. And that's why it's returned. So now you're adding... To the trouble that's returned, you're adding a sense of failure and self blame, let alone in the eyes of God, to the mix. But it certainly isn't the system's fault. It isn't the healer's fault. It isn't the fault of their promise. It's your own fault for not kind of committing to it. And that is explicitly what um, Rhonda Burns says in The Secret you know, you put your wishes out to the universe and. If you don't get the new car or the, the pearl necklace, there's always these weird, yeah. weird sort yeah. of... Um, kind of 80s things. prizes from a game show. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really strange. <laughs> the washing machine. Yeah. Um, if you don't get those things, then it's because you didn't commit enough to your belief. Um, and it's... The problem with it is just plausible enough because obviously we know, you know, if you want to do well in something, of course, it helps to, you know, commit to that thing and and, and think positively about it. Of course, all those things help and they help to an extent and they help with certain short term goals and so on. But it's it's a recipe for disaster when you start to plot these things across your life, because ultimately the universe doesn't care what you wish for. And ultimately, things will go wrong in life, right? And so, what the Stoics wrote about and what well didn't write about what they spoke about—is this idea of just making peace with the fact that that is what life is like. So, it's like an X equals Y line. So, on one axis, there's all the stuff you want to do, all your aims, and so on. On the other axis, there's stuff that life throws back at you. So, it's fortune. It's the what. They used to hold in high esteem and we don't nowadays. We've sort of forgotten about it. Fortune, fate, just stuff that life throws back at you. And we actually lead a sort of X equals Y meandering diagonal line along those two. Um, So you just got to kind of find a way of making your peace with that rather than pretending that you can crank the line up uh, so it's in line with with your aims. So that's really what I'm kind of writing about. So Happy was very much about stoicism, which is a very direct way of doing that. The trouble with stoicism, I think, is that it um, it's great until you're actually kind of in real relationships in the world. And then it can just sort of, it hasn't got a lot to say about that. It's very much about pulling your centre of gravity in, which is enormously helpful and beneficial. And, and it's a great way of avoiding anxiety and so on. All of those things are really helpful. But there's a little thing that it sort of misses, which is, you know, our sense of self isn't as isolated and drawn in as we might like to to think you know a couple of thousand years of western thought have made us settle into that idea quite comfortably but actually it's our self is something that extends out into the world and is changes depending who we're with and it's a very fluid thing and i so this this book is a kind of a continuation of the thought but very much not stoic thought it's a bit more geared towards connection and compassion and so on
0: well let's go to your first object which is a cloak that, I, I love the sound of this um, it, that you used to wear in your twenties.
1: Yeah, so it might help first of all to understand that I was a closeted homosexual. That might this might just provide a sort of framework for understanding this, and I think there's a uh, there is a seed of truth in that kind of hopefully outmoded. Pastiche of the gay man being, you know, the the hairdresser or the the actor or the fashionista or the interior designer. Those are all about dazzling surfaces. And I think if you've grown up feeling any kind of shame about what's inside, you do get very good at dazzling surfaces that deflect people from that awkward discussion you don't you don't want to have. So I think there's a there is sort of a grain of truth in it. So that that was probably part of it. I think I thought I looked like a sort of philosopher poet. I think I probably looked like a, a sort of female leisure pirate. I had so it was big, big balloony trousers, jugglers' boots, and then I had quite long hair. I think I had a drop earring at one point, and this cloak, and it was a cloak that a friend gave me. I used to ponce around in it. I don't I think there's a better word for it, I used to ponce around in this. But I was very self-conscious, and I think it is a bit excruciating thinking back on it, but also it's such a chunk of my Kind of life, um, and I remember the first time I really stopped wearing that sort of thing, and how sort of liberating that that was. Um, what was it that made you stop wearing it? Do you think? Remember my so start of uni, it was very colourful stuff. It was like tie dye stuff. Then it went to the cloak and everything, which was black on white or just sort of wasn't hugely colourful, but it was still clearly very odd. I think I just eventually grew out of it. I, it was probably maybe starting to do the TV and, and all of that. I can only, I mean, that would have been very odd if I was walking around like that in real life and also being that guy on TV. That was 30 when the TV started. So I must have I must have sort of let that go. I don't really know. I think we do just grow out of these things, don't we? And I think you must look back on anything. you've. I mean, I look back on anything from 10 minutes ago and find it oh, embarrassing. It's yes, just...
0: I mean, completely. I think you say in the book that you used to put the, Cloak on and go to a cave and read Nietzsche.
1: Yes, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So I
0: it was very similar at drama school. I got really into existentialism and read a lot of Sartre and plays by Ionesco. And I used to write poetry about the plays and stuff directly after reading them. I mean, honestly, I can't. I can barely bear to read it now. But in a way, I think I understood what they were saying more purely than I would now with two young kids and kind of my brain full of a lot more stuff I think it's very easy isn't it to look back and think god I was such a dick I didn't
1: but actually mm. I
0: think there is some value in having that time to devote to trying to understand the world
1: exactly I think there's two things I think there's, cert- there's first of all there is value in looking back and thinking what a dick I was because that is sort of part of growing up and if we didn't do that we wouldn't be growing I guess but also that kind of maybe that is the time in our life when we're most engaged with the big stuff that matters. And then after that, it's harder to engage with big stuff that matters because, you know, there's less time for it and so on. And and also in the, you know, the age now of social media when signaling is such a, a big thing and, you know, signaling to your in-group and feeling part of your in-group is a much bigger thing than it was for me then. I don't know how old you were, but certainly that wasn't the equivalent of that, but there was still a lot of wanting to signal to the world, your kind of intellectual, you know, whatever. Um, so there's a lot of you know obviously, obviously all that feels a bit silly looking back, but maybe I, th- I think there's a there's a lot to be said for that. And even as I say in the, in the book, the feel, feelings of anxiety and sort of pointlessness and a sense of the thinness of everything, I think those are important messages. It's like it's something is something's just speaking to us through the normal, distracting thickness of experience and sort of going you know just engage with this. It's you know it, it's it is important. Um, it's about, and that's sort of about letting anxiety sit, which is again, it's the opposite of like a stoic thought of like how to always avoid anxiety. But then you can end up with an anxiety about anxiety, you know. And then part of the, the difficulty of, of suffering from anxiety, which I don't, I'm probably the opposite, but I know a lot of people that do, is you do become anxious about the very fact that you're anxious. You know, panic attacks famously are sort of, you know, you're because in a cycle of. Yes, you've yeah. tried
0: to push it down.
1: Yeah, exactly, and you're yeah, but certainly even if you don't particularly suffer from anxiety, there's a real thing in relationships where you things happen and you feel bad about whatever's going, but then you feel bad about the fact that you feel bad, like you shouldn't be, like you should be feeling good because you're in a relationship. So you're adding that level to stuff that's already making you feel bad. Uh, so there was a lot to be said for letting these letting anxieties sit and just giving them a comfortable place and not always feeling like we have to to run from them.
0: Yes, let's move to your next object, uh, which is. A mug, not just any mug, though. I know this is very special to you. Um, could you describe what's on the mug and then tell us what's normally in it?
1: Uh, it's my favourite mug, although there have been three of them because I kept... Well, because I was using them all the time, so they kept breaking. It's my Playbill mug. So it's uh, I got it when I was playing this uh, New York theatre in um, 2019, just over into 20. So it was it was kind of just before... Broadway shut down for, you know, the pandemic. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a, so it's a nice mug. It's like a big, because it's American, so it's a, like a giant mug. Um, probably not designed for Earl Grey, but that's what it gets. And it's got the Playbill logo across the face. It's quite a handsome thing. It's yellow and black and it's nice. But I chose it because, like most of my time now, most of the stuff I enjoy is writing and is reading and things that don't really lend themselves to objects I could offer. So it's just something I associate with that that world for me. Um, yeah, I broke it and then and I got I had to order a new one and then that one broke and the house moved. So I'm now on my third one. I ordered two just so I was now covered, which feels a cheap because now it feels like it's not the special object because there, there are two of them and that's confusing. But it represents to me writing and... I
0: love the fact that you talk in the book so much about where you are in, in various cafes near Broadway where you're performing and really stayed with me as a reader. And I, I found it Quite important to know where you were writing. Um, did you kind of make a conscious decision to say that you were in this particular cafe and you were observing this passerby, or did you happen to be there and think, oh, actually, I'm gonna write about that woman I can see sitting on the bench?
1: I think when I started writing the book, I was setting out to express ideas that might have sort of ended up a bit dry, possibly. So I was didn't imagine I'd be including those things, but then and I remember I was sat outside the Lincoln Center in New York and it's the first chapter in the book and I think the first time I do sort of come out of the ideas and Yeah, talking you're talking about, about just, the older lady. The, the old lady, yeah. that's right. Um and then that did feel a very a, a very sort of nice and comfortable um thing and I think if you are trying to also communicate things that are um could be preachy or could be like oh this is how I think you should be or you should live or you should think or or, or just sort of big ideas it's it's nice to sort of um pull back from that and be more personal as you'll as you know you'll know from stage like all the great comics have a great blend of sort of communicating ideas that are actually really important and the way they seem to get away with it without being preachy is to deflect everything back on themselves so this idea of a vulnerable sage I think is a really a really helpful thing I've certainly tried to incorporate that in when I do stage shows like if I do talk about ideas but how you if you need to balance that with somehow making yourself vulnerable which is Difficult and counterintuitive if you're a magician, which is normally like you know you're playing a, a god character, which is they not very interesting dramatically. Like there's, I think that whole that whole world is really interesting to try and uh, and get right. So yeah, it is something I did do in the book, and I was spending most of my days out there in cafes uh, writing it. I sort of wrote it across the whole lockdown, so it started before lockdown when I was out there. Then lockdown happens, which ended up being a sort of convenient play out of the ideas that I was talking about because the the I wanted to write, I suppose, in essence about the fact that the, the, when life does take us to these difficult central points, this centripetal force that pulls us to the middle and things are difficult, we do tend to feel we're most alone and we're isolated or we've failed or whatever that is. It's a very normally quite a lonely place. But the point is, that's life doing its thing, which means we are at that moment experiencing the weight of life, like the, the actual heft of life itself, which means we're most connected, like we're just experiencing what it is to be human. So we're actually at our most connected to other people. It just doesn't feel like that at yeah. the time. And the key to it, which I write about, is I think to understand the the, the importance of, of of melancholy and to give that its place.
0: Yeah, to me it felt like melancholy is an active state because it involves yearning, it involves a chink of hope and it involves connection, crucially. What I'd love to know is what, you would say about how someone could convert feeling alone, depressed, isolated into melancholy, which is such a different mode of being. Is it just the realisation that you are a human being and there are others who feel the same?
1: Well, I think that is a big, that is a big part of it. There's the idea that this is something that's, that's shared. So it, and that brings with it a mode of understanding this sort of X equals Y diagonal thing and just sort of living that. And all all you're doing is taking the sting out of it from a sort of inward turn, sadness or sense of tragedy to a sense, oh no, life is sort of inherently tragic. It does have that sort of note to it, not in a dreary, pessimistic way, but just in a kind of realistic way. And then understanding this is now, this is actually the kind of, this is the real um, human experience, Uh, but also how you let the parts of yourself Sit comfortably and and I mean the uncomfortable parts of yourself as you let as you let them sit more comfortably, it seems to reflect how we let other people sit comfortably as themselves, right so this idea of the other, so like when you 're in a relationship we normally just throwing all our needs and our wants and our demands and our projections of that other person at them, and they do the same as us. We both fail to catch what's coming at us. It builds up between us, and then we can't see each other at all. So actually just allowing the other person to, to be this other and therefore mysterious and therefore possibly threatening. We don't quite know who they are or what they are, but at least they're being themselves. Just sort of leaning into that as a as a thought... There's a parallel. I think all these things, how they work outside, have parallels inside. And and the parallel is how we let sides of ourselves that we would otherwise, you know, banish.
0: Um, Well, let's move on to your next object. Um, This is uh, quite interesting to me because I I don't own one. Um, Your next object is a camera. Ah.
1: Yeah, well, street photography, that's like been a big passion of mine. And it has stopped a bit since coming again to the country because there aren't so many well there are streets but there aren't so many kind of it's quite an urban thing i guess but i it's a very lovely thing to do on tour so when i start doing that it'll be a um a great thing to have have with me it's so I've got a little leica thing it's a beautiful camera and it turns out i think that the important thing with cameras is nothing to do with the spec that you know they try to entice us with it's just how much of a lovely object it is how much you enjoy having the thing with you because you need to have it with you all the time if you're going to Take pictures of things. Otherwise, you start. Um, and it has this. There's two effects I noticed. One, one is from somebody that generally would keep their head down a bit if I was walking around, probably unnecessarily. But I, it suddenly lifts you up and makes you very engaged in the outside world without suddenly being noticed too much or being hassled. Or any of the worries that you might have thought might happen, because I think you're just suddenly a guy with a camera. I think so. I think people just see one thing about a person and go, OK, so I'm with a camera. And so I've never actually been recognised as me. I don't know how, how often it would happen without the camera, but from that limited experience with the camera, that's that's interestingly never been an issue. So I find myself much more open and sort of engaged and sort of living in the present a lot more with it. And I think any, anything that gives us that is um, good. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing about it, about having a camera sort of tied to you in that way, is anywhere you go suddenly becomes... Photogenic because it's uh, the nature of of street photography isn't necessarily about beautiful photography. It's sort of finding I don't know maybe coincidences and shapes and kind of beauty and things that you would normally pass by. You know, it's not like sort of landscape photography perhaps or other other things that are going to be more scenic. So it's it's a lovely way of really opening up the world to yourself, and it's just gadgety enough as well that that kind of brings its own uh, rewards too. Yeah,
0: I was going to ask you why. You felt more drawn to street photography than, say, photographing a field. Is it because with the street photography, you kind of have to work a bit to think, how can I, which bit do I want to capture? Because there's so much more action, whereas the field isn't really going to
1: change that much. So I think it's it's partly because I'm still a bit shy. I'm not getting the impression I'm desperately shy. I'm I'm not, but I I definitely have a bit of that in the way that probably a lot of performers do. So I, I think it's by changing the experience of being out in the street amongst people, most of the people that do street photography very well have no qualms, you know, just walking up to people, sticking a camera in their face, wandering into situations and just ingratiating themselves or sometimes stopping and asking people if they don't mind to, you know, if they do that that sort of picture where you're making yourself very overt as a photographer and asking people to stop and whether you can take their picture, sort of street portraiture, I guess you'd call it. Um, and I find all of that so... Uh, hard, there's a challenge with it to do it and do it properly which is, um, there's that nice idea which again is a bit like the X equals Y diagonal I find that idea comes up in so many different forms, so like Freud for example when he invented talking therapy, it wasn't to make people happy, he said it was to restore natural unhappiness and to get rid of unnatural unhappiness. But life is basically unhappy a lot of the time, so you're just trying to get to that natural state of sort of unhappiness. It's it's interesting. Um, I was going to say another way that manifests itself is in the idea of flow, which is is around as as an idea now. It's quite, um, seems to be well known from a guy called Michaela Csikszentmihalyi, I think it's pronounced as. Whatever you do, whether it's surfing or playing chess or painting or photography or stand-up or whatever, it's when the challenges roughly meet your skills that you have this sort of zone experience and it may not necessarily be happiness but you feel you're sort of at your best you're doing your best thing regardless of what the thing is there seem to be shared qualities like losing any sense of time and the mindset is sort of is similar but if you're if the challenges outweigh your skills you're going to get anxious and if your skills outweigh the challenges you're going to to get bored but this sort of x equals y meandering diagonal emerges again as a kind of going with the flow of of life right so so i think i think photography sort of does that for me because it does it actually yeah.
0: this brings me on so neatly onto asmr and would just love to know your opinion on asmr and whether you get it because i do get it and i sometimes get it when i'm performing at maybe one gig out of 20 or 30, it's not that common, but it's when I improvise something and the audience really loves it. And it feels like for a moment it almost goes on to another level, like we're ah. all sharing this experience together. And the other time that I commonly get it is with really benign conversations with strangers, where it, it can be as mundane as you like, but it I have to feel like I've been kind to them in some way. And then I will get this feeling that we call head squeezing in my family of just my spine and my scalp just tingling but i would l- just love to know yeah, if if you get it and if you have any opinions on it and i'm sure you induce it in people as well because i get it in reveals as as well i get it on stage when something's revealed
1: oh that's interesting yes gosh i've never really thought about it like that i think i think the power of a sort of fellow feeling is enormous and kind of it doesn't quite get the um you know the pr it, it deserves There's a philosopher, um, Emmanuel Levin, as I talk about in the book, who, who's really interested in that. He says, basically, we are, we're not rational creatures, we're ethical creatures, because I'm going to explain this badly. But the, the point where we meet and make any connection with somebody, there's always a sense that we're kind of presenting ourselves, we're like asking a question that's being answered, there's a need that's being, that's being met. Of course, we put up, you know, all these sort of defences and things that get in the way of that. But just, just sometimes, when that is really felt and made evident, I think it touches us in that way and i I know exactly what you mean because it it there's almost something sublime about it, like it's just sort of connecting to something that is bigger than the particular experience that we that, that's happened, even if they don't always give you the sort of the shivers I think just leaning into the importance of that sort of wherever you wherever you can, and it is you mentioned gratitude it's gratitude. And compassion does it. And um, again, there's the things I talk about in the book, and it's not from me, it's from a guy called David Destino who writes about this. He's got a book called Emotional Success, and his research is about how gratitude, compassion, and the right sort of pride, so not the bad pride, like the hubris, but the right sort of pride when you're feeling naturally good about stuff that you've done, that these things are useful in a way that we actually don't really always think about, which sounds a bit counterintuitive, but they're very good at Motivating us because they can be shown through any number of experiments that he talks about. So if you're trying to motivate yourself, what you're trying to do is value the thing that you know you need to do in the future more than the thing in the short term that's distracting and getting in the way. So like you don't eat the ice cream now because you know actually you're trying to achieve a certain figure, maybe, or you you don't go out now because you need to study and you know for this exam that's coming. And when we're experiencing gratitude or compassion or the right sort of pride, we do that very naturally. And also that his point is these things now bubble up from an emotional basis rather than all the techniques about motivation and forming good habits all seem to come from a very top down approach of, well, you know, you repeat this behavior every day for 30 days and you all these sort of hacks, whereas actually there's a sort of a different way of it, a sort of a bottom up way of approaching it by encouraging these kinds of emotions, which also then sort of create a bit of a loop, because if you're if you're more compassionate, people are more grateful to you and then that feeds back and you know there's a kind of an upward spiral thing which is uh, useful so yeah I think all of these are really big things and they don't get described or spoken about much because we prefer to think about ourselves as autonomous individuals like units that mustn't be influenced or whatever or have a story to tell or or whatever it is it's all about us being quite isolated and I think these these speak of the power of, of connection and when we're surprised by those moments, I think that's a really important thing that we should encourage.
0: So it's your final object, and I don't own one of these either.
1: Um, it's a paintbrush. <laughs> ah, yes, yes, a paintbrush. Well, I, I paint, and my main lockdown activity, apart from writing, has been painting. Um, I think what the painting does to me, as the writing does as well, and maybe the photography to an extent. It allows me to lose myself in something that's bigger than me, right? So this is how we this is how we find meaning in life, isn't it? You find a thing that's bigger than you and you throw yourself into that thing. And that's why religions work and, and big ideas of spirituality work, but also, you know, it might just be your kids or parenting or, or uh, anything you love, really. But I think that thing when it's bigger than you, um, I know if I don't have it, if I'm not painting, which will take, like, say, a, a couple of weeks to do a picture, or if I'm not... Um, if I'm not writing, that's when I get muggy and not exactly depressed, but kind of. I start to veer definitely towards that, and I'm sure touch on it. And again, like the writing, it's like when it's done, it's sort of of no interest anymore. It's not really about the the product at the end of it, it is this sort of process and the engagement.
0: Do you ever think? think about them being on someone's wall in like Ipswich or something and wonder, or do you just go, that's it, I'm going to do Willem Dafoe now, I'm going to go on to the next
1: one? Um, I do, well, I, the big change in them really, I think this last year and a half has been selling them probably. So I used to do them, but they really went on my wall and then I'd have the occasional exhibition. But, you know, who wants a six foot picture of of Willem Dafoe or any, anybody else? Necessarily? They're, they're not six foot, but they're big, they're big things. So I never really sold them much, but now I am selling them. It's very liberating because otherwise, you know, they're just sitting in storage or taking up wall space. So now it's really, it's really lovely thinking I'm doing this thing, and then it goes and it exists somewhere else with somebody who is, you know, going to enjoy looking at it more than I would because it would, it would just be just be put away. So yeah, it's a it's a new it's a new thing, and it's uh, so it's different from book writing because the the object is gone. You know, the thing you've created has has sort of gone. But it, it yeah, it highlights the importance, I think, of all of these things. It is the process that you need to that's the, the thing. It's the doing it that's all that matters. So at the moment it's done, I'm very happily onto the on to the next one. But yeah, it's it is lovely. Uh, whether it's Ipswich or, or, or um wherever. There's a guy in Scotland has loads. Like I have a oh, really? I have a proper collector. Yeah. Um so thank you if you're listening. That's uh, that's much that's that's like amazing to think that somebody's now collecting my pieces.
0: We're going to have to finish in a minute. Do you know what I wanted to ask you? You know, when you say that when you're at the end of your life, it's really important to look back. What you essentially say to me is you will automatically remember your parents, your siblings, your lover, probably the most important previous lovers and your best friends. But give a moment to think about the grocer, the taxi driver, perhaps the school teacher who your kid only had for six months or... And that bit made me cry. I don't know why. And this morning when I did the school run, I thought the woman who stands at the school gates I don't know her name. I don't know if she's a teacher. She obviously works at the school unless she just likes going to say goodbye to parents at school gates. Like I looked upon her in a different way because of that bit of the book. And I thought, you are an important aspect of my life. And there are probably people we'd rather... Not see, and actually, you do say the neighbour. You duck into the shops to avoid something. I just loved that bit, and I wondered if how long have you thought that? Is that something that that you've held for a long time, or when you were writing the book, did you realise that? And who is the least important important person in your life?
1: I'm interested to know. Well, I, okay, so it's it was a specific. It's a lesson from the end of life, but it's definitely something for the present, not not a kind of, oh, just before you die, remember what you read in this book and do that. So it, I I was thinking about somebody that worked with me slash for me, sort of part of this little sort of team of people that mean I don't have to think about all the things I'd be terrible at doing, I can just do the fun stuff. And this guy's annoying, like it'd always been someone that sort of annoyed me a bit. And I was thinking about him and then I sort of just did this little mental shift which will sound really obvious because to anybody else because I imagine how annoying it must sound even to have a team let alone find any of them annoying just how immediately upsetting and revolting that must sound coming out of my mouth but I just had this thought of oh what, what am I talking about like this guy has worked with me for a chunk of time and probably will for a bit longer and even if I find him a bit annoying like his. He's the guy that was, like, in my life doing that, right? So he was sort of someone that was sort of around in my life for a chunk of time. And that just made me think about him a little bit sort of differently, a bit more affectionately. And then the same thought just started to expand out to, oh, there's all these other people as well that I kind of work with, or just people I see every day, that... When it's people you're fond of, it's sort of easy to think fondly of them. So I was particularly thinking about people I wasn't particularly fond of, right down to people that find downright annoying. And... There will come a point, perhaps, you know, if we have this experience of sort of realising our life's going to end soon, of going, oh, God, that was that was them. That was all the people that populated my life. And it's, for me, is a really big thought because it not only applies to all the people that you don't like now and maybe you can find a, diff- a, a sort of an affection for because... They're all the people that are shaping you from day to day and giving you your your particular experience of the world and life as you go through it. They are comprising that. But it also applies to the people that loomed too large, like people you fixated on or celebrities that you got obsessed by or people that, you know, you're ruminating over and you, you said the wrong thing or, you know, the porn star you obsessed over. Like any number of people that loom too large, that they're kind of also brought down to size by this because ultimately they'll just be the people that populated your life. I'll take anything that lets me feel more affection.
0: And also it reminds you that you're alive now and this is your life. Yeah. As you say, you don't do it on your deathbed.
1: No, this is this is it happening now.
0: Yeah, this is it. Finally, we like to ask our guests about a recent book that they loved. And I'd love to know what the last book was that you devoured in one sitting.
1: Okay, it wasn't quite one sitting, but the I just recently finished Oliver Berkman's book called 4,000 Weeks. And 4,000 Weeks is the average human lifespan. So it's shorter than we think when we see it as, as a 4,000 Weeks. So Oliver Berkman writes a lot about happiness and sort of well-being generally in the same sort of area that I find interesting. And he also wrote a lot as a columnist for The Guardian and is a lovely, very clear writer. And he's obviously tried a lot of sort of time management things in his life and found them all sort of... Um, none of them really seem to work. You can never get the work balance right. You can only ever clear your inbox or whatever temporarily before, you know, the more you clear an answer, the more people start replying back and everything. So all this, this world of thinking of time as a resource that we have to master, he says, is so misjudged. It comes from the industrial revolution when people started getting paid by the hour, like when that started to happen, then time started to we, we saw it as something outside of ourselves that has to be used efficiently, whereas of course time is time is just the medium through which life unfolds, and if we can make peace with the fact that we're never gonna master it because it isn't a resource to master, then there's a liberating aspect of that because then we can just think about well how do we how do we use this imperfect thing that we're never gonna master? most effectively uh, for ourselves as opposed to just sort of other people's demands being, you know, pushed on us. And it extends into things like relationships too. You know, we, we are never going to master this relationship. This person's never going to make us happy all the time and we're never going to make them happy. We cause so much pain to the people that we, we love as they do to us. And uh, there is something liberating in just accepting that that is the state of things and then thinking, well, how is, how might it be fulfilling what can we lean into or think differently about so yeah it's um it's a book very much i suppose in line um with what we've been talking about and it's uh i thought it was terrific so yeah oliver berkman Four Thousand weeks thank you so much i've
0: really really enjoyed talking Uh, such a treat thank
1: you izzy thank you very much indeed